Well, it's good to see each one of you this evening. I have the, the pleasure this evening of uh, introducing uh, Jacob Hawk. Many of you know Jacob. Uh, I told Jacob I wouldn't take all of his time, just a few short while. He has a, just a small amount of information here that I'm going to share some of, but most of what I'll say is just the mark when he asked me if I would introduce Jacob. I said, yes, I, I've known Jacob for a while. I said, I've known him about 30 years, so the part of Jacob's life, you know, if, you've, if you are one of those that uh, accepts the notion that everything you need to know in life you learned in kindergarten, well, Jacob was already in kindergarten by the time I know him, so knew him, so by the time I got to know Jacob, he already knew everything he needed to know in life. But Jacob is, uh, currently serves as the young adults and singles minister for Preston Crest Church of Christ. He has his bachelor's and master's degree in Bible ministry from Harding University, and he speaks at uh, lectureships and uh, workshops all over the country. One of the things that uh, Jacob indicated is that he has uh, that he learned of or discovered his burning passion to preach the gospel when he gave his first gospel message when he was nine years old, when he preached his first sermon. He's preached for churches in Lano, Kerrville, and Wichita Falls. He's authored five different books, and he's also co-authored two books on, on, uh, on preaching. He also produces a weekly podcast, The Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, which airs weekly out of his office. So it's good to have you, Jacob. Uh, it's good to, to bring your parents, uh, Danny and Karen, so that we can uh, say hello to them as well. Uh, if you would now preach the word. Well, good evening. It is so good to be with you tonight. I always enjoy coming to McDermott Road. It's been several years. Last time I was in here, it was during COVID, and I preached to an empty auditorium. So I'm glad to be able to see faces tonight. There's many people in this church that... I love and have known for many years, as Mr. Mim said, and it's always good to see you again. I got to see Phil Pierce tonight. Haven't seen Phil Pierce since I was about 13 years old. He was one of my baseball coaches, and he asked me, you know, how long has it been? I said, well, I think it's been since I was playing baseball, and I asked him, how old were you when you were coaching me? And he told me, and that's how old I am tonight, which is a little bit depressing. <laughs> And I have about the same amount of hair that he did when he was uh, my age. But it's so good to be here, and thank you for the invitation. When you see those words, carpe diem, I'm always curious what thoughts come to your mind because people have different thoughts about these two words. If you're up to snuff with your Latin lingo, you know what these words mean. In Latin, carpe diem means to... Seize the day, to make the most of this moment, not to put things off in life, but to live each day to its fullest. But as I'm sure you've noticed, and this is not a new problem, the world is much more focused on tomorrow than the world is focused on today. We love to put things off. We love to kick the can down the road. And we do that in many different areas of life. We tell our young people that they need to go to college so that they can get a good job tomorrow. Insurance companies make billions of dollars every year just in case something happens tomorrow. Sometimes we delay taking on more responsibility, more leadership role. 
One of my favorite stories is a story from a good friend of mine. He was a minister for a church in Texarkana, and they had a deacon in their church who was 98 years old. His name was Deacon Bob, 98 years old. And I asked him, what, what is Deacon Bob's job as a deacon? He said, well, he has appointed himself to be the deacon in charge of potluck. And I said, what do you mean in charge of potluck? He said, well, basically, he leaves church early, and he goes and he tries all the dishes to tell people this one's good, this one's not. That's kind of his, uh, his role as deacon. And I asked him a question that obviously he had been asked many times before. I said, well, Deacon Bob, he's 98 years old. He said, yeah. I said, have you all ever thought about Deacon Bob becoming an elder? And he said, this church has been asking Deacon Bob to be an elder for 40 years, and every time he says the same thing. He says, no, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. And they had kind of come to the consensus, if you're not ready to be an elder by the age of 98, you're probably not going to be ready. We want to delay doing the inevitable. But the Bible is very clear on which one it prioritizes between today or tomorrow. Even though carpe diem is a Latin term, it's a very biblical thought. The Bible is much more concerned about today than it is tomorrow because the Bible very clearly says tomorrow may or may not exist. And so you need to make the most of today. And I think of all the biblical writers to discuss this idea of seizing the day. I think the Apostle Peter probably does so the most. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes a couple of verses that you know very well. You probably have these verses memorized, but they speak to the heart of seizing the moment right now. Let's look at these verses together. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Peter says, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. When we think about seizing the day, Peter kind of gives a natural progression of what that would look like, and he begins in verse 15 by telling us that we need to set apart Christ as Lord, but to do so in our hearts. Peter was very clear that for us as disciples of Jesus, the Lord must be number one. Jesus must be much more to us than just a good teacher. He must be much more to us than just a healer or a miracle worker or a leader or even a social activist. Peter says he must be the Lord of your life. And this was not a new statement. Peter had made this similar statement in his own sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We've memorized verse 38, but in verse 36, before he talks about baptism, Peter says to the crowd who is gathered, This Jesus whom you crucified, he has become both Lord and Christ. 
The Jews would love to say that Jesus was Christ because that meant he was the anointed one, the one who was going to come, the one who was going to rule, the one who was going to redeem the nation. But saying that Jesus was Lord required a lot more than saying he was the Christ because the Lord meant he was everything. He was their president. He was their captain. He was their fearless leader. They would be willing to die for their Lord. The disciples weren't always very good at that, as we know. In fact, Jesus one day asked the disciples a very embarrassing question when he said, why do you call me your Lord, but then not do what I tell you to do? Lord means master. Why would a servant or a slave tell their master I'm not going to obey your orders. It was a very embarrassing question without a very good answer. And we do the same thing today. We want to sing and talk about Jesus being our Lord, our Master, but yet we so often do not do what our Lord or our Master, the one who is in charge, tells us we're supposed to do. It doesn't work that way in business. It doesn't work that way at your place of work. If you showed up tomorrow morning and you are the employee and your employer told you you need to do this for the day and you told your employer, I don't think so. I think I'm going to do it a different way, a better way. You wouldn't keep that job for very long. But yet we so often believe that we can tell our Lord, Jesus, we're going to do it a different way or think a different thought and remain in a committed, faithful relationship with the Lord, and it doesn't work that way. Peter says you have to make him not just your Christ, but your Lord. And you do that in your heart. Not in your mind. It's too easy to do it in your mind. It's too easy just to think that Jesus is your Lord. It's too easy just to think that I need to obey. Peter says you've got to move it from here to here. You've got to move it to your heart, the place where your faith dwells, the place where your faith lives, the place where faith becomes real. Jesus talked a lot about the heart. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said, out of the overflow of a heart, a man speaks. People will say things or tell jokes, and then they'll say, well, that, that wasn't me. Yes, it was. That's exactly who it was. Because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. And so Peter says, you got to make Jesus your Lord he has to be your captain, he has to be your president, and you have to do that from your, from your heart. And that's when it becomes real. Peter goes on to say in this same verse that you need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. So once Jesus becomes our Lord, because we've made him that way in our heart, 
Peter says, here's the expectation of what you do because you believe that. You are willing to talk about the hope that you have. You are willing to answer questions about the faith that you possess. What is that hope? Peter says we should be willing and ready to talk about. The hope that Brother Mims prayed about just a moment ago in his prayer that we live by hope as God's people. At the beginning of his book, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter discusses that hope. He refers to it as a living hope. Not a dead hope, it's one that's very much alive, and that hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter says, because of that hope, we have an inheritance. An inheritance that will never perish, an inheritance that will never spoil, an inheritance that will never fade. The Christian hope is the firm conviction that it does not matter what happens to me in this life, I know where I will spend eternity. The Christian hope is the firm conviction that it does not matter what man does to me. God holds me in the palm of his hand. The Christian hope is the hope that can walk into a funeral and grieve, but grieve knowing that this is not goodbye. But grieve knowing that this is just see you later. That Greek word there for hope, as I'm sure you've heard before, is from the Greek word Apologia. It's not a wish. In the Greek language, in the Bible, in the New Testament, when you find the word hope, it's assurance, it's a certainty. You know without a shadow of a doubt that God will work all things together for your good because you love Him. That's the hope that Peter's describing. He says you need to be prepared to talk about that. But how? Defining it's one thing, knowing the methods another. How, how do you prepare to talk about that hope? Well, several things come to mind. We could really spend an entire series on that one question. We don't have time for that tonight. One obvious truth, if you want to be prepared to talk about the hope you have, you have to know the Word of God that describes that hope. You have to be well-read, well-studied, don't have to be a theologian, don't have to be an expert, but you need to know the message of Scripture. And Peter ends, 2 Peter, in that very theme, grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. 2 Peter 3.18. But I also think if we're going to talk about our hope, if we're going to be prepared when that topic arises, we have to figure out a way to do it in a way that's natural. For us, I spent a very short stint of my life in the financial advising world. And the firm that I worked for trained us with their process for how we were to go out and talk with prospective clients about earning their business, whether it be to sell them insurance or some other financial services product or manage their money, and that's always a hard conversation to have with people. And I followed their advice for how to talk with people about that, and it was awful. I, I, I didn't have any luck at all. 
And after about the 45th rejection, I sat in my car one day in front of a Starbucks and started talking to myself and saying, Jacob, for 11 years, you made your living in communication, preaching. Why are you not any good at this? Why are you not closing any deals? Why are you not earning any business? And it dawned on me one day, the reason you're not any good at this is because this isn't you. This is not your style. You're following someone else's script, and you're never going to be able to follow someone else's script and have any success if it's not you. And so I learned a way that was more me. And I sat down with people, and I would basically just say, hey, I'm just here to ask you one question today. What's most important to you? What's most important to you? Do you want to prepare for your kids' college? Do you want to protect your assets? Do you want to make sure your spouse is covered if something happens to you? What's on your mind? And you know what happens? People tell you. They tell you what's on their mind. And it started to work. And then Preston Crest called me and said, you want to work here? I said, yes, please, get me out of this. <laughs> and I did, and I went back to preaching. I enjoyed preaching much, much more. But I thought about that, and it dawned on me. That's the problem we often have in telling others about Jesus. So many people are trying to follow someone else's script. It's not you. It's not your style. And when Peter talks about giving an answer for the hope that you have... Peter doesn't include six points that you have to mention. Peter doesn't give you some PowerPoint slides. Peter doesn't say, begin with this illustration. He says, talk about your hope. Talk about what it means to you. You can't live on someone else's hope. You can't survive on someone else's faith. And you certainly can't bring someone else to Jesus if it's not natural. And so many times Jesus would provide the script, if you please, for what people were supposed to say. You remember when he would heal someone in a village or outside of a village? His instructions. He says, I want you to go back to the village and I just want you to tell people what the Lord has done for you. That's it. That's how we're prepared. We're willing to go and tell people what the Lord has done for us and why we have hope why we have certainty, why we have absolute confidence and assurance in Jesus Christ. But then Peter has one more piece of advice for seizing the day at the end of this passage after he talks about making Christ our Lord in our hearts and after he talks about being prepared to give an answer for our hope that we have. He says, remember this, you have to you have to give the answer in the right way. Peter says, make sure that you answer with gentleness and with respect. If I can translate that for you into more American terms, 
Don't be a jerk. That's what Peter's saying. Don't be a jerk. Don't give someone a reason to say something bad about the Christian faith. That first word there, gentleness, your Bible might read meekness. It's from the same Greek word. You've probably known people in your life who were meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness has a way to present its point with passion and power, but doing so under control. Meekness doesn't have to bang on a pulpit or be the loudest voice in the room to communicate truth. It's firm, but it's gentle. And gentlemen, I think women have figured this out much more than we have. I'll give you proof. I saw on Facebook a couple of months ago a meme that caught my attention. And the meme said this, and I quote, When a wife tells her husband, do what you want, what she really means is, if that's what you choose, may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> that's meekness. That's gentle. Do what you want. I better not do that. It's firm, but it's not loud. It's not mean-spirited. It's meek. That second word, respect, we know what respect means. When you communicate to someone about what's wrong in their life, you respect them in the process. I'm a big baseball fan. I always have been. There was a documentary about a year ago on Netflix about Derek Jeter and his fabulous career with the New York Yankees. And one episode in that documentary specifically focused on Derek Jeter's relationship when he was the captain of the New York Yankees with Pedro Martinez, who was the star pitcher for the Boston Red Sox when both teams were very competitive. And the Yankees and the Red Sox, as you well know, they've always had a fierce rivalry, but between 2000 and 2008, it was really strong because both teams were contenders to win the pennant and then go to the World Series. And Derek Jeter talked about his relationship with Pedro Martinez, both on the field and off the field. And Derek Jeter said, on the field, we hated each other. We despised each other. But off the field, when the game was over, win or lose, we respected each other. We respected each other's talent. We respected each other's love for the game. We respected each other's commitment. We respected each other's heart for baseball. And to this day, even though at times they would have thrown knuckles Outside a dugout. To this day, they are great friends. Because they respected each other. Even though they hated to play each other. Our world's in a real serious state. 
our society is growing more evil by the day. And there are plenty of things to hate right now about our world and our country. But even though we hate what's going on in the world, Jesus would say, don't ever hate the people that live in the world. You hate what they do, but you respect them as human beings. And if you hate what they do, but you respect them as people, Peter says, when you give your answer, when you talk about the hope that you have, when it becomes evident to that other person that Jesus is not just your Christ, but your Lord, Peter says, no one can speak maliciously about you. Because if they do, they're going to be ashamed of what they're saying. They might say, man, I, I don't agree with you at all. But you sure were kind. They might say, those Christians, they sure are weird. But they treated me as a human being. They saw past my issue. They saw past my mess. And they loved me as someone who, regardless if they realize it or not, was also created in the image of God. I heard someone say one time, Christians are supposed to be like Teflon. You know what Teflon is on pots and pans. Teflon's claim to fame, nothing sticks. It'll always slide off. When we live this life that Peter's describing, we're like Teflon. People can make all the accusations against us that they want. People can say all the poor things about us that they want to say. But if this is our life, where Christ is Lord, we have a hope, and we talk about that hope with gentleness and respect, their slander will not stick. The truth always prevails. And so as we finish tonight, and as we think about these words... I'd invite you for just a moment, if you would like, to close your eyes. I want you to picture a scene with me in your mind. It was a cold night in the city of Jerusalem. And this man named Jesus, who was a carpenter from Nazareth, for the last three years had been attracting all kinds of followers, but... On this Passover weekend, he had been arrested. He was standing on trial by himself because all of his closest friends had fled the scene. But one man, a man named Peter, he watched from a distance in the courtyard of an official named Caiaphas. And Scripture tells us this is what happened. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. 
Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You can open your eyes. I read that passage tonight from Matthew 26 for one reason. As you start putting the pieces of the New Testament together, who wrote what, when it happened, where it happened, I believe with all of my heart that years later, once Peter's tears had dried, once he was an elder in the church, once he had delivered his sermon on the day of Pentecost, years later, Peter still remembered that night. When he picked up the pen to write 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he remembered the courtyard and the house of Caiaphas. The sounds, the yells, the shame was still on his heart. He remembered when Christ was not the Lord of his life. He remembered when he was not prepared to give an answer. He remembered how when he did answer, it was not with gentleness and it was not with respect. And he would never forget the sound of the rooster crowing three times and the eyes of Jesus turning with blood on his face trickling to the ground and looking at Peter straight in the eye. And tonight I think Peter reaches through time and he grabs us by the collar and he pulls us in close and Peter says, don't get caught like I did. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be a man warming my hands over an open fire making the biggest mistake of my life. But to keep that from happening, we have to seize the day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time we've had together tonight. Thank you for your word, the power of your gospel. Father, help us to always be ready to give an answer. 
Help us to build that answer on the fact that you are our Lord and help us to do so with gentleness and with respect. Father, thank you for this great church. Thank you for its leaders, for its ministers. Thank you for the good that it's not only doing here in North Dallas and the north part of the Metroplex, but literally all over the world. Father, may you be glorified in all things. We pray this together tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen.